chapter 4 is a transition chapter out of the first section of 1 Corinthians. Before we get there, I want to reflect with you once more on the closing verses of chapter 3, where the Apostle Paul makes a kind of outrageous claim, saying that if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you, we might say, you have it all. It's a fitting text for us right after Easter. It's actually a fitting text really at any time since most Christians rarely feel like they have it all. In Corinth, there are quarrels, there are divisions, there are factions. Jealousy and strife are thriving like weeds in the garden of the Lord, which was the church in ancient Corinth. The garden of the Lord is every church that believes and teaches the apostolic gospel of Jesus Christ, and it was full of weeds. Some believers in Corinth were lining up behind Paul. Others were lining up behind Apollos, Paul's co-worker that he left behind to teach in the church. Some were lining up behind Peter, Cephas, and it's acrimonious, and it's dishonoring to Christ. It was distressing to Paul. And it's the first issue that he addresses when he writes. You'll find it, the text on the insert inside of the bulletin. It brings us right to the end here of chapter 3, which is the end of his remarks, Paul's remarks about this issue of divisions there in the body of Christ. These verses actually are a kind of formal end. Though in chapter 4, Paul, like he often does, is going to kind of slide back into um, the discussion. But let's listen to it. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. Paul is speaking both sarcastically and paradoxically. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. The Lord saved, rescued the world and his people through the scandal of the cross. Everyone thought Jesus was somebody other than God come in the flesh to rescue the world. And they thought it was folly. He catches the wise in their craftiness. That's from the book of Job. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise that they are futile. Psalm 94. So here's Paul's conclusion. Let no one boast in, and we might add the word mere, men. Human beings, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours, and you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. Let's pray. Lord, indeed, a passage like this astounds us as we try to probe its inner meaning, where Paul here sums up, as it were, almost everything that was won for us on that first Easter weekend. Oh, Lord, the joy of you is our strength. Come now to us, give us ears to hear, even by the Spirit of the Lord Jesus, the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. O Holy Spirit, come and teach, we pray. We ask it in Christ's name. 
Amen. So that's the question, isn't it? This is a grand and a kind of poetic statement here. All things are yours. What does it really mean? It sounds kind of fairy taleish, especially in light of the strains and pains in your life and in mine. Take any section this past week, this past month. Well, to answer that question, you really have to go through all of Paul's epistles and pull together everything that he teaches. And I think if you do that, then we could put it in these terms without exaggerating. We could say that if you are a Christian, you stand to inherit a new world when it comes. A world rid of evil and death, rid of everything that threatens you, and that is all because of the scandalous death of one man. That first Easter weekend, and then, of course, on Sunday morning, his unheard of resurrection. It's the man Jesus, the man who is called the Christ, the anointed one who came to us from God. Now, if you've ever seen that great classic film, Back to the Future, 1985, some of you know it, this mad scientist guy takes Marty McFly back into the past in a kind of time machine contraption. Well, some of you know the sequel, it's Back to the Future 2, and there Marty gets taken in the same time machine contraption into the future. He gets taken to October 21st, 2015, in an effort to change the future, to alter the future, to keep his children who, of course, as of yet were unborn in his present, he's trying to change the future so that they do not end up in prison. Well, while he's in 2015, Marty watches a sports broadcast announcing that the Chicago Cubs have swept the World Series in 2015. Well, this broadcast inspires Marty to take something from the future that he has gotten and bring it back into his present. This is actually the very same thing that the Apostle Paul does with Christians in Corinth. Only what Marty does is this. He buys a 2015 sports almanac and takes it back to his present time with him. Why? So that he can make accurate bets on future sporting events and win a ton of money. So much for his lofty motives. It's actually interesting that the Cubs won the division playoffs last spring in 2015 and everybody was going, oh my gosh, is this a prophecy? They're going to win the World Series. They didn't, of course. But the principle in Back to the Future 2 is the same with the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul takes the Corinthians into the future to catch a glimpse of the phenomenally 
fantastic things that will be theirs when Jesus returns at the end of history. Why? In order that they can bring that back into their present, from the future. He wants them to bring it back into the present, into the strained responsibilities, into the strained relationships. Why? In order that that future reality might affect how they think about the present. And that is a New Testament principle. There's an aphorism that crystallizes it. A Christian lives in the present off the fat of the future because of the past. The past, of course, refers to the fact that everything have that we have to look forward to when Jesus returns is all grounded in what was one for us and for every other believer when Jesus was shamefully crucified for the guilt of our disobedience and then was resurrected on Easter morning. But those future things coming, some of which we already have now, but particularly the ones we do not have, they are, in fact, wild and wonderful. They are good. They are full of pleasure beyond expectation. And they're not only good, and this is kind of the kicker, the Apostle Paul actually expects the Corinthians and me and you to choose to let those coming wild and wonderful things shape the way, alter the way, improve the way, influence the way that Christians respond to their problems, and particularly to problem relationships in the here and now. So the practical question is, well, what are some of these things coming to us in the future that Paul wants us to bring by faith? That's the only way you can bring the future into the present. What are some of these things? Let's look first of all at Paul's list when he says here that Christians have it all. 321, for all things are yours. The first thing he mentions is, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas. That, of course, was their present. And Paul's saying, look, there's no need for you all to be acting like second graders here, competing with each other over these men. All the spiritual insights and gifts that your leaders have, your teachers have. Paul's saying, that's already yours. That belongs to you as Christians. Why? Because they had the Lord Christ and his truth. That to have him and his truth is to have all truth wherever anybody teaches it or sets it forth. And then he says, the world is yours. Now that's interesting. The world is yours. Is the world ours yet as believers? And the answer is, the simplest answer is no, it's not. But it might as well be because one day, according to Romans 8, it will be ours. We don't have time to go there, but in verse 18 of Romans 8, the Apostle Paul refers to, quote, the glory that will be revealed in us. 
That is, we Christians. He's referring to the future. And then in the very next verse, he says this, For the creation waits. The created world waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. Now think about that. What that means is that all of created nature, excluding the disobedient, who are not part of the glory and the power of the age to come, but the whole created world is waiting to see what you are going to be, what you will be like. When Jesus Christ changes you and you will somehow, and we're led to believe, literally shine, like the stars. It sounds too good to be true. It sounds like pie in the sky. But Paul goes on there in Romans 8, for the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. What's Paul saying here? Paul's saying there is a sequence. The creation is waiting because the creation cannot enter into its glory until you and I enter into ours. Once we are changed and are made like Christ, then created nature itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay. Now, the details, of course, are not clear, but they have to be tremendous because the outline of things here is so very clear. The whole of verse 18 in Romans 8 that introduces... That amazing teaching goes like this. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing to all that. There's the practical action that Paul says flows from laying hold by faith of the reality of all of this coming in the future. It is supposed to relativize in the present Trouble, difficulty, pain, awful thing. And Paul's saying, really, the worst thing by comparison is no comparison at all. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing, there's the present, with the glory that will be revealed in us. There's the whole of our magnificent, immortal Future compressed into one little five letter word glory. Well, back to verse 22 of 1 Corinthians 3. Death, life or death, is yours, Paul says. All things are yours, life and death. It's not crystal clear what Paul means here, but it's possible that he means here exactly what he says in Philippians, and that is whether he dies or whether he lives, he wins. For to me, to live is Christ. To die, that's gain. So whether I live and Christ uses me to push forward his purposes in the world, or whether I die and go immediately into the presence 
of this one with an immortal body, this once crucified, glory-shining being. Once I go into his presence as a friend, at least my spirit, not my body yet, but my spirit, that indeed would be gain for me. Well, then he says, or the present or the future. The present and the future, that's yours too. Perhaps this is Paul's, it is poetic, but perhaps it's, it's a comprehensive way of referring to everything good that now exists in the world that God gives us access to, and it also perhaps is a comprehensive way of talking about everything good that God will bring to us when Jesus returns. Verse 22, he says it again, all are yours. Well, it's poetry for saying to you as a trusting child of the living God belongs by right, as it were, everything that is good. You literally have it all. But look at verse 23. There's one more thing. It's even more precious. And you are Christ's. And Christ is God's. The supreme thing, your prized possession if you trust in Jesus, is that you are not alone, that you are not unclaimed, that you are not abandoned, that you are not unloved. The prized possession is that you belong to the Christ of God as the object of his tender affection and love. And he proved it when he laid down his very life for you in abject humiliation and pain. He did that because he loved you. And knew that he needed to do that to cover your faults, your sins, your offenses against God. If you were to be reconciled to him and find him as your father. Where are you today? Who are you today? When you read this text, you think about it some, unpack it a little bit. Do you begin at least to comprehend who you are? Who you are by virtue of what you have in Christ, if you trust him. A study just came out, I think it was early January, the net worth of people across the world, the richest person in the world, the richest couple in the world, worth $87 billion. The second richest comes in at $20 billion below that. Friend, you are richer. You are richer than that. Well, I've put on here what I've called illustrations of our text because it's helpful to try to see more into Paul's thinking. I've put just a couple of illustrations of 
what Paul means here when he says all things are yours. There are more in other places. We've just sung this morning of reigning with Christ. Paul will say that in 1 Timothy. There are other places where Paul gets specific about what is ours as Christians. But if you look here, I've bolded the promised thing to come and underline the way Paul will tie that to the problem or the difficulty in the present. And we're going to come to this, of course, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. But just to go over it quickly here, Christians in Corinth were taking one another into the civil courts. They were suing one another in civil courts. And Paul is profoundly distressed. And so he writes, when one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare to go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints, that is those who have been made holy by virtue of their faith in Christ, do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you, and that's in the future of course, Are you incompetent now to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? Well, who would know that we are one day going to stand in judgment over angels? Paul must have taught them that because he seems to be chastising them for having forgotten it. Do you not know that we are to judge angels how much more than matters pertaining to to this life. It's amazing that into this situation where these Christians are suing each other, Paul goes into the future and says, one day you're going to be judging angels, whatever that means and whatever they need to be judged about. Maybe this is fallen angels, but Paul actually expects that to have some influence on the way they think about the conflict. There were two people two parties at least in conflict in Corinth, probably over something having to do with money. Well, here's another place, 1 Corinthians 15, that illustrates what it means, all things are yours. It's in the resurrection chapter, of course. Some of them were denying that there's a coming resurrection. The first man, Adam, became a living being. That's Adam in the garden. The last Adam, that's Jesus, became a life-giving spirit. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. And when all of that happens, Paul is saying, this is coming. Then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. He is teaching that your body, if you trust in Jesus Christ, will become like Jesus' body was. He comes through walls, into locked rooms after he's raised from the dead. His body bears a different relationship to space. 
your body will become imperishable, as Paul says, immortal, which means incapable of disease, of injury, of demise, of death. That belongs to you. Paul expects that to mean something in the present. And so he ends that whole chapter with this. Therefore, verse 58, my beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable. It's very easy to shift with the culture. It's very easy to give up under pressure of one kind or another. Be steadfast, immovable. It's very easy to get lazy, to get tired. He adds, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Because that's coming when you're going to have a body that's even more powerful than all these action heroes in the movies. Well, the last one is from outside of 1 Corinthians. It's in Romans but it's a wonderful, almost a little side allusion to Abraham for the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. You simply cannot find any place in the Old Testament where Abraham is promised the world. The promised land was a type and a figure that little slice of earth on the Mediterranean Sea in the Middle East stood for the new heavens and the new earth, the whole world. Paul says that's ours. That's ours. Well, all of that, friends, is in the future. What about in the here and now? Well, all kinds of things... We have been given that are ours to enjoy in the here and now, from sunshine, from the beauty of flowers in the spring, to the people who love us and whom we love in our lives. But in the New Testament, the central thing that we have been given now is the Holy Spirit, who brings actually the resurrection power of Jesus Christ into the present Not so much to change our bodies, though the Lord heals at times. And we pray often, do we not, when we're praying for the sick, by the same power that brought Jesus back from the dead, heal this person. But he brings the resurrection power of Jesus Christ into our hearts, our lives, our habits, our addictions, our sins, our faults, our failures, our weaknesses that we might begin to change. And that, of course, is hard. But it is also full of glory. I'm going to close with a quote from a well-known Christian counselor. I think he wrote this in the 90s. But it illustrates what we're talking about the pain but the good things that the Holy Spirit wants to bring to us even now as he works on us. This counselor wrote, a woman recently told me in tears, I have pretended for years that my husband loved me. And before that I tried to believe that my abusive mother loved me. 
The only way I could maintain that belief was to blame myself for everything that went wrong. Realizing that they treated me so poorly simply because they didn't love me has been the hardest struggle of my life. And then to admit that much of my effort to be good was nothing more than sinful self-protection. That struggle, this woman said, is even worse. I hurt so bad, but somehow I feel freer now, more alive. And the counselor went on the intense suffering that comes when we face the depths of our disappointment in others and the reality that their love is imperfect, is exceeded only by the pain of admitting that the poor treatment we have endured from others is not the core problem. When we grasp how thoroughly we have organized our lives to avoid feeling deep pain at the hands of others, and when we admit how that self-oriented commitment violates both trusting God and loving others, we begin, he writes, to understand how Isaiah could say, Woe is me, for I am undone. Those people who have tasted both their disappointment and sinfulness know the relief that comes after the storm. A sense of quiet exhilaration, freedom, and the release of a restored soul are the fruits of abandoning defensive pretense about certain relationships and admitting how sinfully self-protective we are without excusing it on the basis of our pain. That's the work that the Holy Spirit does in the here and now. And I know your lives, many of you, you've tasted of the change that this hard and painful work has wrought. But it has begun to be good beyond comprehension and one day will be thorough and complete. And then all these relationships that were so difficult for us now will be nothing but glorious and full of pleasure. That's coming. In the meantime, friends, everything that is good already belongs to you.